there's a whole body of research that I find that we don't really talk about a lot that really does sort of name the fact that this isn't, you know, the, the inability to stick to something like that, whether it's Weight Watchers or intermittent fasting or, you know, low carb or whatever, is not necessarily, it's not an individual failing. It's, it's really something that we can expect based on how our bodies are hardwired. And so I think these conversations get supported by the fact that we have a lot of science to suggest that these things don't work long time and long term. And then we can relate that back to the individual experience and kind of name like, remember when you felt badly because you felt like you didn't have willpower that was more so related to your body's response to restriction and these rigid rules. It's not you, it's the program. And it doesn't matter which program it is, kind of how it shows up. Our bodies are going to resist what feels like restriction because it's, it's really a protective mechanism. We are Gold Ivy, a health company dedicated to simplifying health and wellness. The industry is lacking the honest experience and grit required to overcome the struggle. And we're here to fill that gap. You decide what works for your daily life and how to transform our lessons into your gold. Join us on the fearless pursuit of self-discovery and growth. This is Ivy Unleashed, a Gold Ivy production. Hello, hello. Welcome back. You are listening to Ivy Unleashed. You're here with Brooke and Andrea. How we doing? We are doing great. Oh, I'm so excited for today. Me too. We are giving you guys access to yet another incredible mind. The first dietitian on the show. So excited. She is in California. So jealous right now. <laughs> so jealous. It's where I want to be. Oh, yes. But what's cool about this dietitian is she is unlike probably what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Disrupting the space of nutrition in a good way. I love it. In a great way. If you follow her on social media, you'll see not what you'd expect. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, crazy things that are unlike what you'd see in the space. For instance, anti-diet. And it's not what you see when you're watching TV and you see commercials about food at all. At all. Which leaves you kind of confused. Mm-hmm. So it's we have a lot of questions today. <laughs> a lot of questions. Should we dive right in? Yes. Let's do it. So our guest today is a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and has a master's of science in nutrition. Yes. Welcome to Ivy Unleash, Kathleen Meehan. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? Good. I am good. I'm really happy to be here and talk to you. Yes. We have lots of questions. Should we just dive in? Yeah. As our listeners know, I struggle with food, Mm -hmm. figuring out what my body wants, what it likes, what it doesn't. Food is huge, not only for me, but for a lot of our listeners and anyone in the space. So... Kathleen, I'm curious. Can you tell us about how you got into intuitive eating? I didn't learn about it in school. I'll tell you that. It was sort of, um, I stumbled across it a few years into my career and it made so much sense. It really just clicked and it sort of was the, um, the missing piece for me, what I had been unable to describe on my own or kind of put my finger on what what I needed when I was working with people but it it was really eye-opening to learn that there was this framework that would really support people in a different way. Can you tell us about that framework? I'm so curious how you go to school you become a, a registered dietitian and then you have this and kind of how that works together. Yeah I think it works really well together. I um I love the idea of intuitive eating and the non-diet approach because it really combines enjoyment and pleasure and satisfaction with the experience of eating, which kind of felt like the missing piece for me or one of the missing pieces when I was learning about kind of like the, the do this, don't do that perspective that we often hear. And I really just appreciate that it's more about listening to your body than listening to the external uh, rules or suggestions or beliefs that so many of us have when we think about food or how bodies should be. 
and it, it, it's an it's a weight inclusive approach, which means it really respects people's bodies and where they naturally fall when you know you you have different behaviors in place that are more about nourishing and less about restricting. Okay, and just for people that don't really know what intuitive eating is and what that would look like to become certified in it, you know, what is it that's kind of the basic framework of how you become a coach or how will you become a certified, you know, instructor on this? The certification process is through uh, two dietitians, Evelyn Tribley and Elise Resch. And they, uh, you know, they literally wrote the book on intuitive eating years ago uh, in 95 was when the first edition came out. And so they have trained a number of not just dietitians, but there's even a training process for lay people if they're interested um, but they've trained a number of folks on the intuitive eating approach and sort of what it means to counsel through that lens and kind of help a person either heal their relationship with food or sort of maintain a healthy relationship with food as they navigate through the world. So it, it gives a little bit of structure and sort of guidance for how to kind of counsel someone a- along these lines. And I think it's, it is really supported by an ongoing learning process of working with people. And, you know, I'm get supervision from other dietitians that have been in the field longer than me. So it, it doesn't feel like it's just, excuse me, certification and then you're done. You know, I feel like I'm constantly learning in the past few years since I've had that certification too. I'm curious. So a client comes to you, wants to work, wants to have a better relationship with food in addition to losing weight and you take this intuitive eating approach, what does that look like when you first get started with someone? Yeah. So I'm, I'm very upfront with people that I, as a weight inclusive provider, I, I also practice within the haze paradigm, which is the health at every size paradigm. I don't explicitly work on weight loss with people. And so I, I think it's, ethical to be very upfront with that and and kind of let people know a little bit about my philosophy. And I think it's really understandable to have an interest in weight changes, given the culture that we live in and sort of these pressures associated with the thin ideal and, and diet culture is so pervasive, it's really seeped into our healthcare system. So I I always like to sort of say that we can hold space for both. We can hold space for the desire for weight change, but we're going to do things like work on your relationship with food, work on your relationship with movement, discuss what self-care looks like and body respect. And it's interesting because I think sometimes when we focus on weight loss or when people focus on weight loss, we're not always focusing on all the other things that we could be discussing, it's kind of very much tunnel vision to try and try and see weight changes. Well, that just speaks to the holistic view of health mm-hmm. that we always talk about mm-hmm. that, you know, if you better your relationship with food and focus on one aspect, you have to tie in all of these other aspects because your body, I heard this the other day, is an ecosystem, And all of these parts of our bodies talk to each other, Mm -hmm. make us up. So that's interesting because when I think about working with food, I think about where do you even start, Mm -hmm. right? So for someone who's looking to better their relationship with food, is there kind of a go-to question that you ask them or how does that conversation really start? I wouldn't say I have a go-to question in particular, but I, I probably usually start with asking people to tell me about their experience and their story. And, and usually we end up reflecting on what they've tried in the past and, and sort of naming all of the different things that this person has tried that, that maybe hasn't served them in the long run for whatever reason or hasn't led to a peaceful relationship with food. And so, so much of intuitive eating you know, and, and the non-diet framework is really kind of turning down all of the noise. So we're kind of unlearning. We're, we're peeling away all of the different things that you've picked up along the way about, you know, do this, not that. And we're trying to figure out what it's like to experience food and nourishment and, you know, responding to your body's cues, kind of really just experience being in your body rather than listening to all that external noise. So... I would say we start with experience because that's the variable that I'm always curious to know more about. 
Yeah. And I think as much as that sounds like a very general question, like what's your experience? I think people are so out of tune with their relationship with food because they're like, what do you even mean by that? Mm -hmm. You know, like they have no idea how much noise there is until a question like that comes into play. And you sound like this radical person that has like, what do you even mean? And it's just, it's in our face so much, you know, it's every commercial, every other commercial. And all of my clients have all of these different things they're trying. Oh, have you heard of this new app? Have you heard of this? And I'm like, there are so many apps that I can't even keep track of having to weigh in every day, having to track everything you're eating, having to put things in a bucket, whether it's good or it's bad or it's healthy or it's unhealthy. And it's just the way of life in America almost where we don't even realize it's happening anymore. And so I would love to hear your take on the multiple apps, the multiple commercials, the avenues that are big and trending and the whether it's intermittent fasting, whether it's Noom, whether it's Weight Watchers, whether it's all of these things that are flying at us nonstop, which one's the best, which one's the newest, which one's the most effective, you know, how do you handle when clients bring up these apps and these commercials and maybe what they should be trying instead? You know, how do you handle that? Oh, there's so many different things out there. You know, I think I, I usually like to relate that back to past experience and kind of asking whether someone has had a similar experience with something like, you know, anything that you mentioned, whether it's whether it's an app, whether it's a program, whether it's, you know, something kind of ambiguous and nebulous that doesn't even have a name necessarily. I, I always like to sort of get curious about what the past experience has been like in relation to that. And what I find is that the conversation often comes back to almost of like, uh, well, that didn't work for me, or that works until it didn't work. And so that then opens up this conversation about what is sustainable and, and why. And there's a whole body of research that I find that we don't really talk about a lot that really does sort of name the fact that this isn't, you know, the, the inability to stick to something like that, whether it's Weight Watchers or intermittent fasting or, you know, low carb or whatever, is not necessarily, it's not an individual failing. It's, it's really something that we can expect based on how our bodies are hardwired. And so I think these conversations get supported by the fact that we have a lot of science to suggest that these things don't work long time and long term. And then we can relate that back to the individual experience and kind of name like, remember when you felt badly because you felt like you didn't have willpower that was more so related to your body's response to restriction and these rigid rules. It's not you, it's the program. And it doesn't matter which program it is, kind of how it shows up. Our bodies are going to resist what feels like restriction because it's, it's really a protective mechanism. So, you know, that's sort of my, my long-winded soapbox of why I really can't endorse any of these products because they all have the same, at the end of the day, if you kind of peel it back, they all have the same intention, which is more so about weight change than, than health and well-being. And also money. Mm -hmm. And money. Yeah. Trying to sell you a $72 billion industry. Right. And that's what makes me worried for my kids growing up in this world. Like, why can't we put money behind that instead of restriction? Why can't we put money behind sustaining healthy efforts, right? And and that's tough too, because that's gray. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's healthy to indulge when your it's your kid's birthday and they want a cake, eat it, right? I don't want them feeling guilty ever about things like that. And somehow in our life we get this switch where it flips and all of a sudden we're feeling guilty about everything we do and we have this dialogue in our head and even out loud with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends, in front of kids, what's okay and what's not okay mm -hmm. or what to feel bad about. So I would love to hear your take on that where things kind of get put in a box on what to eat, what not to eat. And I know from following you that you talk a lot about it's okay to eat processed food. It's okay to eat this. It's okay to eat that. Like, how do you navigate that when people are trying to, whether it's lose weight or improve their blood, blood pressure or, you know, how do you kind of navigate that when there are healthy foods to eat that are from the earth, but also allow yourself the processed, maybe 
put in the box of unhealthy things. It's so interesting because it's, it's very individualized and it's going to be, you know, the, the lens through which we have these conversations are going to include so many different things like access and convenience and affordability and time. You know, I think one of the things that was really eye-opening to me is that the recommendations that we make are, are not even accessible for many, 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 many people. So then who are we speaking to? You know, I don't want my nutrition message to only speak to a small section of the population that can afford to make everything from scratch or has the time to be able to do that. Like that, that doesn't appeal to me. And that's not, that's not what I value necessarily either. So I think knowing that these are very individual conversations based on preference and access, I think we have to kind of recognize that when we have permission to eat all of these different foods, it opens up an opportunity to kind of notice the experience of your body and consider what is going to be realistic for you in that meal, that moment, that day, that season of life, whatever. And so my stance and and as is the stance of all non-diet practitioners is that there's no good and bad foods because when we sort of have that lens, we're very black and white and there's no room for that gray, like you mentioned. And even naming foods as healthy or unhealthy, it sort of puts into perspective that we're putting labels and we're putting, you know, things into boxes and scenarios into boxes. And to your point, if you eat something and you feel really guilty and shameful about it, I don't care how healthy that food is, it's going to have a ripple effect that is unhealthy and unproductive. So it it just goes to show that health is so much more nuanced than we really allow for it to be when we talk about these things in a black and white lens. So I think I kind of feel like the conversation around processed food and versus quote unquote whole foods has really gotten a little bit out of hand because, you know, I think the intention was maybe, you know, slow down and prepare your food when you can and eat a wide variety of foods. And it has become this, you know, way of vilifying foods that leads to guilt and shame. And and that's not, that doesn't align with my value as a provider. Yeah. Something I've learned too is, does this food work for me? Like kind of quitting the unhealthy or healthy because, For me, I've learned that what works for other people isn't going to work for me. And I've taken this approach of, okay, let's focus on eating whole real foods. Let's do all these different diets, the elimination diet. And like any area of health and wellness, it's figuring out what works for you. And so to stop villainizing food and say to myself, okay, how do I feel after I eat this? If everything's on the table, well, then I'm going to gravitate towards foods that make me feel well. And that is such a mental shift from, okay, I can't have this because I know it's going to make me feel bad to, I can have this, but do I want this? So I've learned that it's such a mental game. So I'm curious if you have any experience with clients who, you know, have food sensitivities, anything in that realm and kind of how you work that out because it is such a mental game. It is such a mental game. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I do think, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that there are very true food allergies and celiac disease and food sensitivities and things like that. Those things are very real. So I don't want that to be the take home message that they're not. But there is also, you know, to a certain degree, a psychosomatic experience with restriction where if a food is up on a pedestal or we feel like we shouldn't be having it or we cut it out, we sort of have this experience of it it really impacts our relationship with food in a way sometimes. So through this lens, we look at all of these foods, there's permission for all of these foods, you know, naming anaphylactic shock and, you know, naming... um, celiac disease and things like that, kind of naming that maybe not for those individuals or those foods, but we want to sort of say that you have permission to eat all of these foods and what is the experience of your body and what do you notice? And I work with a lot of people who have IBS, for example, and we talk about, well, what happens if you notice a pattern where a certain food doesn't sit well with you and you'd like to eat it anyway? You know, what is it like to give yourself permission to eat it and kind of recognize, like, I just might need to 
you know, wear sweatpants for the rest of the day and, and lay on the couch. And that's going to be a decision that I make. Or conversely, you might think like, you know, today I, I really, you know, I'm go, go, go. I want to feel good. I'm, I'm not going to eat that in this moment. That's a very different perspective than saying I can never eat that food ever, which does have a, a pretty significant impact on our outlook in terms of how we may feel around that food. So I don't know if that kind of answers your question, but it's tough. I will say too that sometimes we feel like if we shouldn't eat these foods, the anticipation builds and builds and builds and builds. And if we kind of anticipate this food is going to make me feel terrible, I shouldn't eat it. And then we eat it and we don't feel good. It's kind of like, well, is that related to feeling like you should ha- shouldn't have eaten it and you did something wrong or is it something else? So when we liberalize all of these foods and practice permission, I find a lot of people actually do a little bit better and, and are able to eat a wider variety of foods and feel just fine because some of that is that psychosomatic impact of restriction. I love what you said about kind of exploring that relationship with food in a way that's if something's off the table or something's on the table, right? Because thinking about my experience in college, I was super stressed out financially, right? So I just had these Mm -hmm. stressors. I was paying for everything myself, had multiple jobs. And all of a sudden I was lactose intolerant and I couldn't eat anything dairy. And literally the second I graduated college and had a decent paycheck coming in, it went away. And so it showed me what stress does to my body. It like doesn't even allow certain nutrients in my body. And then I want to use that as an example for my clients, but I totally understand like it's not about me, it's about them. And so I love what you're saying where, you know, I'll ask a client like, what if, what if you could eat anything? Like, do you think that you would be obsessed with Oreos every day of your life if you could just eat them? whenever you wanted? Do you think you would eat 45 in one sitting if you could just have them whenever you wanted? You know, and that to other to people though is so gray and they don't like it. And so I guess I want to ask you how you handle people. They're like, I just want to plan. I just want to know, just give me a list. And I'll be like, well, you know, how's that worked out for you in the past? You know, but they still want it. So how do you navigate that when people are persistent about give me a list of unhealthy or healthy foods or like, I want to know how to navigate meal planning or something like that. How do you handle that? I need to tell you about a gem I found. As you know, my body has been experiencing some crazy symptoms for years, including pain and anxiety. I started using Raleigh's Hillside Hemp Full Spectrum CBD Oil, and it has been a game changer. Ooh, tell me more. How do you use it? So easy. Just use the dropper that's connected to the cap to select 0.5 to 1 milliliters of the hemp oil. Lift your tongue, squeeze the dropper to empty the pipette, and hold the oil under your tongue for 60 to 90 seconds before swallowing. You can use it once or twice per day. I personally take it once in the morning and once at night. I also love that it doesn't leave an unpleasant taste in my mouth like all the other oils I've tried. That doesn't surprise me at all because I know the owners of Raleigh's Hillside Hemp, Lauren and Kyle, and they've been farming organically for over a decade now. Everything they grow, including their hemp, is exclusively grown at their farm. The flowers are hand harvested, hand trimmed, and slow cured, creating a higher quality, more effective, and better tasting product than anything mass produced. I know Lauren and Kyle at Raleigh's Hillside Farm use the CBD oil themselves throughout the farming season to help recover from long days because it's great for muscle recovery, mellows their nervous system, and aids with sleep. Lauren and Kyle care a lot about their community, and they knew a lot of people were turning to CBD and hemp-based products as a solution to anxiety, stress, insomnia, hormonal imbalances, and chronic pain. They also noticed that the market was flooded with low-quality, substandard, ineffective products. So they decided to create a CBD product that had the level of quality, integrity, and nourishment that their community deserved, just like they do with their CSA. Not only have I noticed improvements in the symptoms I've been struggling with for years, inflammation, chronic pain, anxiety, but I also love their mission. It's important for me to support brands that are good and do good. 5% of all Raleigh's Hillside Farm products go to their dedicated give back program, 5% for a better world. Raleigh's Hillside Hemp is also giving back to you with a 25% off your full order. 
Use the promo code GOLDIVY25 when you check out from their website, wilocalhemp.com. That's wilocalhemp.com. And you can also find them on Instagram at Raleigh's Hillside Hemp. That's R-A-L-E-I-G-H-S, Hillside Hemp. So head over to our show notes for more information and go get your bottle of Raleigh's Hillside Hemp Full Spectrum CBD Oil. I promise you'll be glad you did. I love that question. Let me just say, as a caveat, I'm not the dietitian for everyone. <laughs> and I sort of like to name that sometimes. Like if some people really want something, I like to explore, well, well, what is it that you're hoping to kind of get out of that? But at the end of the day, if somebody wants like a, you know, two-week meal plan that's really detailed, that's, I'm probably not the dietitian for them and, and that's okay. But all that to say, we definitely talk about things like meal planning through this lens as well, because I think it can be a beneficial or helpful tool to have less chaos in your life. And so what does it look like to meal plan through the lens of permission and being flexible and sort of how do we make sure that you have all these foods on hand that you may want to eat and are going to you know, work well for you and your family? And, and what happens if something comes up where you, you, know, you have this intended plan and you find yourself going through the drive-through instead, how do we make sure that, you know, you're, you're talking to yourself with compassion and flexibility and, you know, non-judgmental or non-critical awareness of the experience. So all that to say, you know, I think it, it makes a lot of sense to have, have somewhat of a flexible plan because I think feeling like intuitive eating means complete chaos is really stressful and really kind of overwhelming for people. And that's not what it means. It's just a different framework of kind of taking care of yourself with more flexibility. So that's sort of what I always say to folks, like we, we can work on plenty of things. And if you want, you know, to benefit from some structure, let's talk about how we can do that in a way that's probably different than how you've ever done it before and maybe it means it'll be more sustainable because it's not something rigid that you know doesn't suit your preferences or something like that so it's so interesting oh sorry to interrupt you but it's so interesting how people aren't flexible about having flexibility in their (laughs) diet like they want a rigid tell me what to do you know you'd think you would be more likely to want something flexible to want Mm -hmm. something to like tune into what you actually desire you know so how do you explain like someone gets on a phone with you they don't even know that you're an intuitive eating counselor how do you explain what intuitive eating is in a way that's like a beginner you know starting like this is kind of how we'll do this to be honest, I don't always necessarily introduce it right away. I sort of ask a lot of questions. And usually I like to start by encouraging people to begin to eat consistently throughout the day and sort of notice their experience as a result. Because if there's any sort of feeling of chaotic eating, a lot of times eating enough and eating, you know, with regularity, so you don't have these extreme, you know, periods of time between your meals or your snacks, or you don't have extreme hunger, or you don't have the blood sugar crash, a lot of people notice that their experience with food becomes a little bit more calm, just kind of like right off the bat, if we can get to that place, which can be really hard sometimes. There can be a lot of barriers to doing that. But that's usually where I start, because then we can sort of say like, well, what did you notice about that? What was it like for you? What did you notice about what was satisfying in those moments? What what sounded good for to you when you made a decision around food and to eat, you know, when you're kind of hungry, not ravenously hungry, what was the difference in that experience? So intuitive eating is really just noticing your experience with food in a way. And so by having those conversations, we're kind of doing parts of intuitive eating. So that's, that's usually where I start with people. And then we, you know, in those conversations, we're weaving in like, well, what sounds good to you? What do you think would make you feel satisfied when you're at work? So, you know, you, you get to have lunch and feel satisfied and then, you know, do what you have to do. You don't kind of constantly feel like you're not satisfied. You're thinking about food the whole time. Like, what does that look like for people? So usually that's sort of how we weave in preference. And frankly, there's some meal planning involved in that because you have to have access to food. You have to have you know, that available in some way. So 
you know, there's that access piece again, making sure it's on hand. And, and then what do we do, you know, in all these different scenarios where that can be a challenge or a barrier. Kind of sounds like first step, becoming aware, learning how to really listen to your body, what it wants, what it doesn't, when it's craving, and then having a plan. And then if the plan doesn't work out perfectly to give yourself grace, does that sound, am I following along correctly? Yeah. You know, I, I bristle at that word plan just because it feels so wrapped up in diet culture mm-hmm. to me, but you're right. It is, it is essentially having a plan. It's, it's having, you know, yeah, it's having a plan. It's having these, these things available to you so that you can actually nourish your body. And I, I always tell people, you know, it's really normal to eat again and again and again and again because our bodies need food. So mm-hmm. if we don't anticipate that need, it's probably going to feel chaotic. So what can we do to anticipate the, your needs? Yeah, I feel like with a plan too, it's something to fall back on, right? So it's life. Things are going to come up. You're a mom. You got kids. You're going to go through a drive through You got to feed the kids. You got to eat. You need to live. And then you fall off. Okay, well, you have this plan in place where you know what to do to get back on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can think about your preferences. Like she's saying, you can think about what am I usually hungry for at that point? Or once you're tuned in a little bit more and you're noticing it, you're like, you know what? Baby carrots don't cut it for me at that point. I need something more. Give me the Oreos. <laughs> or like a handful of nuts and a string cheese or yeah. something, you know? Do you talk to your clients about like how much protein to get and all of these other nutrients that they need to feel like they're full and, you know, someone who has no idea about food and really what they need, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I will say I rarely get specific with numbers with people. Um, I, we don't do calorie counts. We don't do, you know, macro counting or anything like that. But from 10,000 foot view, we do talk about what do satisfying meals look like for you. And usually they include different combinations of the macronutrients, so kind of encouraging people within that eat consistently throughout the day. How are you also including carbohydrates and protein and fat and produce and and what does that look like for you? And usually that's where we begin to start talking about a lot of the food beliefs and food rules because maybe there's some rules around you know fat or rules around carbohydrates and we start to kind of tear those away as we as we add in those foods and you know I don't say aim for this level at every meal but we talk about what did you notice when you had a lower carb meal and and you felt hungry shortly thereafter what was it like you know on a different day when you had whatever food as your carbohydrate what did you notice how you felt and it's really tweaking based on the individual experience because my perspective as a dietitian is there's not any one right way for every single person to eat. So if I'm saying, you know, you need this percentage or you need that percentage, it feels like um, it's a little bit too fine-tuned rather than based on their reality or their experience. So why do you think those percentages are even a thing? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we we have wanted to research the quote-unquote best way to eat for a long time and that's the lens that we've kind of looked at food through and as a result we've created these percentages and things like that and you know I do think I do think you need a lot of carbohydrates in your diet I do think it's important to you know have that be one of the primary or the primary nutrient in your body and I don't know how helpful it is for people to have numbers in their heads or to be tallying that it seems like it requires a degree of micromanaging that isn't always helpful and isn't always necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And our culture is so much about calories. It's people don't even know what a calorie is actually, you know, when they say these random numbers of, well, I want to lose 10 pounds this month. I will break that down. And I will say, do you know how many calories that is to remove from your diet or to have to burn like that's not even realistic and you don't have to say it in a way that's more gentle, but people get these ideas of, oh, I got to cut this out and I got to lose this amount of weight. But in reality, I mean, cutting out 500 calories a day for a week will reduce one pound, right? And to think about cutting out 500 calories, depending on how much you're eating, right? 
But just to think of that alone, of thinking of my day, how I'm going to start is thinking about what I'm taking out, what I can't have, like how depriving and terrible. And, and to find the time yeah, and to I, track everything. It's tough because people do have weight goals or people want to be healthier and I am here for it. I want to help you too. But it it's so important to acknowledge how you feel and what you're going to put into your day. And I, I can't stress that enough with people where, what are you going to eat? Let's talk about what we can have a, abundance of at any point that won't give you the guilt or the shame. Like, what could that be? What could you eat a lot of that wouldn't give you guilt, you know? And so that's kind of how I navigate it. And I know that, you know, every coach is different. And I would love to hear more about how you navigate someone that is really talking about cutting out, depriving, reducing the calorie, knowing their basal metabolic rate so they can cut it down. You know, how do you navigate that? Or what kind of knowledge can you kind of share that you know about the destruction of that? Yeah, I think to start all of this, I always like to lead with individual autonomy. You know, autonomy is a real value of mine. I think everyone can do what it is that they like. And I also think it's important to share with people that weight science is very complex. And we've kind of oversimplified it to sort of say it boils down to calories in, calories out, or, you know, exercise and nutrition and all of that. I think a lot of people have a lived experience of struggling with that, where maybe it works until it, you know, doesn't work. And so I always like to, you know, echo their lived experience and bring in some of the research that shows that, you know, when we restrict our bodies view that as a threat. It's sort of like our bodies can't determine this is intentional weight loss versus this is a famine. And so at a certain point in time, we see that there are these adaptations, whether it's related to hormones or stronger cravings or however it sort of shows up, your metabolism slowing down. We see that your body begins to fight back as a means of survival. And I don't know if y'all remember, but I think it was like 2015, 2016, there was this big study about the biggest loser and the individuals from the biggest loser. And it really highlighted, not for the first time, because this research has been around for a long time, but it really highlighted these metabolic adaptations with weight changes. And what do we do about that? We, we don't have an answer. There's not really a solution there. And because of the challenges that a lot of people experience with weight stigma and the experience of weight cycling, you know, that weight regain and loss again and again and again, I try and steer people away from that because it does impact your metabolism and your health long term to be fighting with your body like that. And those are really hard conversations to have because, again, we live in this wider culture where there is pressure at every turn to see weight loss. But if a person is struggling to lose weight and quote unquote keep it off or lose weight and maintain it, I like to share that information to just kind of validate that their experience is not a lack of willpower or like they're doing something wrong. It's it's really normal and their experience echoes what the research shows. So that's one of the reasons why we kind of move away from restrictive eating, certainly not the only reason, but if we move away from, you know, low calorie eating and things like that, we often notice that people experience other things. Maybe they have more energy to move their body or they sleep better, they're less irritable, or they get headspace back because they're not kind of doing that tug of war of don't eat, but I'm hungry, but don't eat, but I'm hungry. And people sort of realize that there's value in that. And I'll have the name, I have been privileged. And so this is easy. If a person is trying to lose weight to gain more privilege in the world, it's really, really hard to have these conversations. And, and, and that's why we have to have compassion and honor autonomy. I love that because no one talks about the stress or how much sleep are you getting? What is the quality of your sleep? Is your thyroid working properly? What are your hormones doing? Everyone just thinks nutrition, exercise. Calorie in, calorie, calorie out. out. Yeah. Well, and I'd love that you, you've brought up the access to food too, where we talk about it in a way that everybody can afford and has access to all of the vegetables, you know, and it's just not true. And it's, it's tough. And it, it's tough when the only access you have to food is a McDonald's or a Taco Bell in your town or something like that, where um, 
if you've got to eat, you've got to eat. And sometimes it's not accessible. Mm -hmm. And so I just think there's so many barriers and I want to just keep talking about so many different aspects of this because I have so many questions for you because you bring up so many ways to think about food and ways to think about words that just are thrown at us like all of the time. Like you bring up detoxes and cleanses. I would love to hear your take on how you feel about those and how they affect you. Oh my goodness. I, you know, my initial response is that they're part of the diet industry. You know, you mentioned that it's a $72 billion industry. And I would say that they fit within that, even though they're often sort of viewed through the lens of wellness rather than dieting. But, you know, we have organs within our body that are constantly working all day long, which is one of the reasons why you need to, you know, eat a fair amount of energy every day. But our organs are detoxing and cleansing for us. And, you know, if you need help with that, you probably are in the ICU, actually. So we don't really need to be spending money on these products that do that for us because our bodies are incredibly they're incredible. They, they're taking care of it for us without us worrying about it. And I also think that, you know, these, these cleanses or these detoxes that really just end up kind of being a low calorie endeavor, you know, it, it, it really sort of is either dehydrating you in some way, or you're, you're kind of drinking your calories, and it's a low calorie thing for, you know, X number of days. We see that people lose a lot of muscle mass during that time, too. So, you know, if anything, you kind of end up restricting and losing muscle mass. And then when you understandably resume eating normally, you know, where are you at that point after you, you may be worse off because your precious lean body mass is now gone, which is really hard to make muscle, especially as we get older. So I, I say save your money. And if you're interested in detoxing, you know, maybe there are other things that we can think about, like social media detox or being intentional about getting enough sleep or, you know, thinking about how can I drink water without restricting my calories or what can I add, add in to boost nutrition rather than viewing everything from a restrictive lens. I love that. Yes. It's, it's such just, a great way to think about it. Yeah. I, I struggle because... It all sounds great, right? Like I love everything that you're saying. And it works for the majority of majority. people. Yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking of the people who this is so far over their head and have just eaten whatever they want forever. And they are listening to this and they're like, I cannot eat whatever I want. I have to put some restriction on myself or I will eat whatever I want. And then I'm thinking of the people who have IBS or are struggling to figure out what their body is trying to tell them. So I'm going back to just the bringing awareness piece and how someone who this is so far over their head can just start. You know, I, I want to sort of honor that if anyone is feeling like this is so overwhelming or this is so vague or like, what is she even talking about? I, you know, I want to hold space for that because I know that this can feel so out there almost and I think to your point we want to honor starting with awareness and not from I almost feel like mindfulness has been you know hijacked by the wellness industry in a way in a negative way not even from that sort of lens where you have to do it perfectly but what do you notice about your experience because intuitive eating is you know it's the set of concepts essentially that provide both permission and attunement so Oftentimes, the missing piece of, you know, well, intuitive eating is eat whatever I want. I could never do that. The missing piece is having the experience of trust. And so we have to sort of build up to that. And, and sometimes it's helpful to do that with external guidance because it might feel really overwhelming. But how can we practice permission while also practicing attunement, which is kind of noticing the experience of your body? And there's a lot of different pieces in there. You know, sometimes we have to solve for the restriction because if you are trying to practice permission, you know, when you are really restricted, that kind of primal brain that is aiming to fight against restriction is going to say like, you know, I need to eat a lot of this food. I'm typically restricted. I never get to eat this food. It feels very chaotic. So there is a sort of systematic approach to making sure that your body is well nourished before you just dive into the permission piece 
to prevent that chaos. But everyone is different. Everyone sort of needs a different approach, which again, is kind of like why this is so touch and go. And I don't view myself as the expert. I kind of view myself as, you know, what is your experience? You're the expert. What do you feel like we need to start with? If that makes sense. Yeah. And it it is so overwhelming to, so to have someone like yourself or a coach, anyone to not so much hold your hand through it, but to tell you this is normal. What you're experiencing is okay because the game and the narrative that goes on in your head when you begin to revamp this relationship with food is crazy. Well, and I think that People don't know what to ask themselves during this experience. So the value of a coach, I think is just, it's insane. Like I, my coach Kara asks me questions. I never ask myself, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I just think if you don't have a coach, you know, maybe Google some intuitive eating questions that you could ask yourself. I'm sure if you type this in, that there would be some things that come up or following you on social media makes me have all kinds of questions I've never even asked myself. I think we talk a lot about who do you follow and what message are they sending you? You know, what does that make you feel when you're following this person that Mm -hmm. has this specific meal plan of things that you don't even like? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to eat anything that's white and creamy, period. (laughs) Like, Quit telling me that that's what I should eat because I'm not going to eat it. You know, and that's okay. Yeah. Because you don't like it. You don't have to do anything you don't like to do. Yes. But Everything is nuanced. I think it's so important, but I also think that there's something about food that's different than any other topic in health and wellness. I think like the trust that you're talking about when it comes to exercise, it's so easy for me to trust myself that I'll stay in shape. If I take a day off, I don't feel like I'm not going to be in shape. You know what I mean? Like you take rest days, right? You take days off and you know that on Monday you're going to be back in the gym or you're going to be exercising or whatever. And so I'm kind of tying it to food now. Like if I have some pizza, it doesn't mean I'm going to gain six pounds back or I'm an unhealthy person. If I allow myself this rest day or this day to like just eat what I want. See, but then there's me who I allow myself to eat pizza and I look six months pregnant and got to put the sweatpants on. So it just shows, though, that it's different for everyone Mm -hmm. and that what you're reading, you can read it, but you don't have to fully take it on right? or believe what you're reading. It doesn't apply to you because it's not your experience. Yeah. Do you have any experiences like that where you're hearing what someone else's experience is with food and you're like, that's absolutely like, that makes no sense. (laughs) That is not me. Like, I will just disregard this, even though it's from a scientific journal or something? Totally, totally. I think that's one thing about intuitive eating is that it really does trust you, or excuse me, help you build trust in your own experience. So then everything that you take in, you sort of see through the lens of how would that work for me? Or, you know, that wouldn't work for me at all. That's not for me. And so it it just kind of means that you value Honestly, you value all these snippets a little bit best, a little bit less. Like if you see this new like crazy diet on the evening news, but this research study came out, you're kind of like, okay, that exists, but I don't need to do that because that doesn't sound good to me or that's not going to serve me well. And, you know, as I'm saying that, I feel like I need to plug, like this is an evidence-based approach and there is so much research to show that practicing permission and and kind of healing your relationship with food leads to improved health. So just because you are sort of saying like, I'm not going to engage in that doesn't mean that you have worse off health, like whether you're kind of considering health through a subjective lens or objectively through biomarkers like cholesterol or blood pressure, whatever, we see improvement in the research that has been done. So it's this interesting paradox of investing less in you know, the sound bites of you have to do this to be healthy and you actually end up a little bit healthier, which is really kind of fascinating to people. And, and you know, I also have to say, like, if any of this sounds like, whoa, that's way too much, like there's books, there's uh, tons of research. If you're a research person, like there's so much to kind of dive in more about. So I almost recommend anyone who is sort of like, huh? To, to see what other resources are out there and kind of learn a little bit more about this because 
you can't talk about a paradigm shift in 45 minutes or however right. long we've been talking, yeah. you know, like it, this is complicated mm-hmm. and I believe in it for everyone if everyone is interested in it. I think a good place to start too is following you on social media. Mm-hmm. With that being said, where can they follow you? What What are your social handles? Thanks. I am on uh, Instagram. I'm the RD nutritionist on Instagram and I'm also on Twitter at Kathleen M R D N and most of my content, if you see, shows up in both places because I am trying, I have my own personal and professional goal to spend less time on social media. So it's, it's not a um, visually appealing Instagram, but it will get you to think. Oh, it's informative Hopefully. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll plug those <laughs> on the show notes and all of our socials as well, because highly, highly recommend. Yes. So I'm curious about how you feel about how us as a culture, especially in America, have lost trust in ourselves. Obviously, there's commercials, there's ads. I get it. It's everywhere. And that's I know that's a big part of it. But how are all these other countries that also have access to the internet and TV, you know, how do they trust their bodies more than we do? How do they get more variety of food and, and trust what they know is true to them more than we do? You know, I have to say, I, I don't know that I feel like this is just an American issue. Although I will say diet culture is incredibly strong here. I think that it's, it's interesting when you learn about these different paradigms, because if we kind of come back to like, where did these things originate? The answers are really complicated. It's not just the companies that wanted to make money. It's kind of based on different beliefs around what constitutes a hierarchy of bodies and and how to kind of conform to that. So it sort of opens up a whole can of worms to to really recognize that diet culture and and therefore the inability to trust your body is related to all of these wider systems that need disrupting as well, you know, that sort of says there is a hierarchy of bodies and certain bodies are treated better with respect. And so it honestly, um, there's roots to racism with all of this. So I think learning about that is really eye-opening and kind of helps us also recognize that this probably doesn't relate to our values in any way whatsoever. And, and I think that can, that can sort of be a missing piece for people as well, because these are all things that we have learned, basically. So I don't think it's an American issue. And I also think it is a, um, you know, maybe there's unique elements to that, given that there is kind of a hierarchy and social structure. Yeah, I think as it relates to bodies. Like you're saying, it's multifaceted. I think when you follow you on Instagram, there's so many different ways of looking at it and how it affects us. And I just, I love that. And so I'm curious too how you got into this space. Like you're obviously very intrigued by it, and you explore different areas and ask different questions and really just open up a ton of discussion on this. You know, people love following you. You can tell it give a lot of engagement and it's fun to even read what people are commenting on from what you post. Like it's sometimes it's polarizing. Sometimes people are like, hell yeah. Thank God someone else said it. You know, like (laughs) you're super ballsy and I love it. Like, I love that you say how you feel because I just feel like people are kind of scared to say how they actually feel. Yeah by the messaging. And so how did you kind of get here and how, like, how did this become your passion? Oh my gosh. How did it become my passion? You know, I think I, I've always loved and celebrated food. I grew up in a family that really celebrated the food and food is just a joy and, and it's so communal. And then I went to school to become a dietitian and felt like sometimes what I was telling other people to do with food wasn't necessarily honoring that same love of food. And so it felt like there was a disconnect there for me personally. And I also began listening and counseling and and kind of hearing what people were saying. And I was realizing that there was a bit of a disconnect and certain behaviors that we would be encouraging in one population, we would be naming as disordered in a different population. And I heard a quote from a person named Deb Burgard, and she said, you know, we diagnose eating disorder behaviors for people in smaller bodies, but we prescribe those same behaviors for people in larger bodies. And I, I remember where I was when I heard that quote on a podcast, and I literally just, it stopped me right in my tracks, because that was sort of the piece 
that had been missing. It was sort of what I was recognizing that really I felt a cognitive dissonance over. You know, on one hand, if, if someone is excessively exercising, you sort of get concerned about that if they're in a smaller body, but that's what's praised in order to maintain weight change for folks in larger bodies. And so, you know, that's just one example, but there are many. And that felt really unjust to me. So it was sort of this process of determining like what what aligned with integrity for me. And and once I learned all of these things, I felt like I couldn't keep practicing the way that I was. I, I kind of felt like things had to really change. And I feel like I'm able to use my platform to name these things and direct people to resources and other people who are really you know, have been doing this work for longer than I have. And I like to be a little uh, contrarian, you know. <laughs> you are a powerhouse. I feel like I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing because you could be saving people's lives with exactly what you're talking about, this disordered eating. Like, it's so huge. It's just like all of the messaging kids are getting, it's so confusing. And if we just celebrated food. And that's what Nellie said too. Nellie was on here talking about intuitive eating. And she was saying that as a kid, she loved mm -hmm. food. They just ate it and they enjoyed it. And there's just something about the freedom of that, that a lot of people don't even know. They've never yeah. even experienced it. And so your messaging is, is super powerful. I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing on social media. Yeah. And what speaks to me is it's so overwhelming. I'm so overwhelmed. And you're just validating that it's normal to be overwhelmed because look at all of these things that are being thrown your way and how the hierarchy of it, it's not on you. You have to figure out what works for you and stick to that and trust yourself. And it's a process. It's not an overnight thing. Mm -hmm. But the more that you gain that trust in yourself and with the decisions that you're making, you're going to feel better. You're going to be less stressed. Yes. And you're going to be able to do whatever the hell you want to do because it's true to you. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you That's so it. much, Kathleen. This has been great. Do you have any last thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? I feel like you guys have given me this opportunity to share so much. I'm really thankful. I, I would just say, you know, practice giving yourself permission. Practice and see what it's like and what you notice. And, you know, eat enough. Eat your carbohydrates. Yeah. That's my method. <laughs> I love it. Well, Kathleen, we leave our audience with uh, three gold stars. So these are takeaways. Would love to know what you'd like to leave our guests with, your top three okay. takeaways. I would say um, eating consistently throughout the day is one of the best things that you can do for your body. Stressing about food is stress on the body. So don't discount that impact. And so to just echo what I just said, like, what would it be like to honor your preferences and honor your cravings? Like, what would it be like to include satisfying foods and see what you notice? Oh, so powerful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Our next segment is unleashing Ivy. So these are our rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right. What's one thing you do to center yourself? Listen to music. Oh, I like it. When you're really struggling with the messages diet culture is sending you, what's one thing that steers you in a positive direction? Oh, I think um, getting off of social media, kind of putting down my phone and stepping away. And I've, I've been taking social media breaks on the weekends. And I find it has been helpful during the pandemic for me to do other things. All right. And last question. What's one thing you wish you would have known sooner? Oh my God, one thing. <laughs> um, one thing I would have wished I had known sooner. I, I wish I learned about this in school. It, it Learning about this requires a lot of unlearning and that includes my education. So I would have loved to have been introduced to these topics sooner. Well, hopefully one day this topic is in the books. Yeah, it's happening. There, there are some RDs to be who are really sparking important conversations in the classroom. So they, they are true. I'm going to say badass. You can say yes, badass. Can. <laughs> That's like our favorite word. Yes. Thank you so much for being here, Kathleen. You are so inspiring. And just every time I look at your Instagram or hear from you, I just, I, it just makes me question so many more things. And I want to channel your badassery of not listening to everything you hear and tuning into what that means for me. And 
how to love food more and enjoy it. And so I'm just, thank you so much for being here and taking your time to be on Ivy Unleashed. We really appreciate it. Yes. All right. And our last segment today, your piece of gold. To paraphrase Deb Brigard, recognizing that the behaviors we diagnose as disordered for folks in smaller bodies are the same behaviors that we encourage for those in larger bodies. And that feels wrong. This is Gold Ivy signing off. Listen to your truth and go chase your gold. 